Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 42 for December 2014. I am your co-host number one, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How are you doing, Mike? That's me. I'm sub-commander co-host. So um, how, how have you been? I've been good. Uh, my new job has been keeping me busy, which is uh, very exciting, and I've uh, been managing to find some time for retro computing stuff, so that's good too. That's even awesomer. Yeah, I'm working on a new project with my 2C that I'm very excited about, which I'll be talking about later. How about you? You keep hinting about that. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm starting to get very, very curious. I, the, the need to know is, is building up. Well, I've actually got a, I've got a hardware project and a software project. I think the software wow. project is going to have to wait till Kansas Fest because uh, it's a big one and I'm... I'm only half done, and it's about halfway to the next K-Fest, so I've got my work cut out for me, but I think it's going to be fun, so uh, I'm keeping that one under wraps for now. But I think, yeah, I think the hardware one, uh, the cat's out of the bag on that one. Well, I'm sure the software one will be amazing. For those of you listening at home, we're obviously this is our, our uh, annual roundtable. We decided to continue the tradition from uh, years prior. I think it goes all the way back to when Ryan Suenaga was doing A2 Unplugged, actually, and Ken and I thought it would be a good idea to continue it, and then Quinn and I thought it would be a good idea to continue. So here we are, but you'll notice that uh, my voice is conspicuously or perhaps unconspicuously absent from from the interview, uh, the roundtable, and that's because, um, well, I sometimes get migraines, and I don't want to get too much into the hell stuff, but basically when I get one of those, I'm pretty much down for the count, and um, not a lot I could do about that, and it was just a matter of scheduling everybody, and, and it was, you know, we weren't going to be able to move anybody else, so... I will be hearing this as I'm editing, but uh, in the meantime, I am as excited as the rest of you listeners to hear how it went. Yeah, and I can attest that Mike sounds very funny when he's on those medications. <laughs> she called me the next day, I think, and, and uh, yeah, I was a little bit loopy, more than usual anyway. Well, now you've ruined the illusion that we had all these people here in the studio with us doing this roundtable. I don't think there was ever an illusion of that. Oh, I don't know. I think everyone up till now has believed that we have a big elaborate open apple studio with like the pointy foam on the walls and like fancy monitors and stuff. Well, you know, I, I do have the, the palatial mountain estate, the, the open apple Rocky Mountain, I, I like to call it. Uh, ah, yes. The, the getaway, but... Um, yeah, open apple world headquarters. Right. Yes. At least in my mind, I do. Yeah, we're all there right now. Sure. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Speaking of our round table, uh, why don't we uh, roll on into that? All right, here we go. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. So next on our show, we've got a bit of an open apple tradition. We like to do a round table at the end of each year, which was where we just uh, round up uh, a few of the community members. Uh, some folks you may know, some folks you may not, and uh, we just have a little fun. We ask some questions, we see what people think, what people are looking forward to, what they're up to, and all of that jazz. So tonight in our round table, we've got Eric Sheppy Shepard 
and Sarah. Oh my gosh, Sarah, I'm going to butcher your last name, uh, so I won't even attempt it. And Carrington Vanston. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, start by going around the table and tell us a little bit about yourself. So we'll start with you, Eric. Uh, yeah, uh, so I've been going by Sheppy among the Apple II crowd since, what, 1991? Oh my god. It's a long time. Um, and so I've, um, I've uh, been programming Apple IIs since I was a kid and uh, got really into it in college and became kind of like this guy who was, made a lot of utilities that people liked and stuff. So I uh, have been well-known in the community for a while for that reason and also the fact that I just won't go away. <laughs> awesome. All right. And Sarah, you're up. I am a longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> this year was my first Kansas Fest, which was really awesome. Um, some of you Woo-hoo. may know me from running my Apple II ornament workshop. And I yes. also recently reacquired my Apple IIe a couple years ago. So I've been playing games and looking at old programs and documents. And I recently just installed my Super Serial card, which I'm very excited about. Awesome. All right. Carrington Vanston, you are up. Uh,. I am a cult of personality. Mm. True. <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> I, 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 and I am your biggest follower. <laughs> and uh, I am a podcaster and longtime user and fan of the Apple II. And I am occasionally also stuck with Mike on microphones. Ah, yes, the infamous no quarter. I've got a bit of a bone to pick with no quarter. Mike actually closed our show with your trailing bumper I last heard. month. Which, uh, <laughs> he closed one of our episodes, though, with drop three inches so oh perfect well he just does it as a round table full circle so as soon as he closes drop, drop three inches with uh, open apple then uh, the circle is complete the circle of life it's the circle of life this is the circle of apple okay so let's uh yeah let's get into some questions here uh i'm going to be moderating our panel of rogues and uh let's uh let's let's get started here i'll start with uh, some easy ones and uh, then i'm going to get into the uh the hard-hitting journalism a little bit later First question, uh, what was your first Apple II, and what happened to it? Sheppy, go. I'm going to go with the first one in, like, in my family, in my house. And that was, uh, it was actually, we were living overseas, and my dad bought a, uh, a Data Mini 1 Apple II Plus 2E hybrid clone thing. It was actually a pretty neat machine, um, and that was what I used for a very, very long time, way longer than normal. And I actually still have it. It's um, in a box, and several of the keys are badly stuck. But as far as I know, it still works. Awesome. What was the name of that thing again? Data Mini 1. D-A-T-A-M-I-N-I. Wow, um, I have never heard of that. Has anybody yeah, else it heard was of that? Really a, it was a really neat little machine. It had some really hmm. cool features. So it was a 2-plus clone, but had some... It was a 2-plus clone, except that it had um, a uh, it had lowercase support, and it had a, uh, a built-in uh, Z80 card built onto the logic board, and a bunch of other stuff. It was really... Uh, it was kind of like halfway in between the 2-plus and the original 2E in terms of what was built into it, and then it went a little beyond that in some weird directions. That's cool. I thought I knew all the Apple II clones, but that is a new one. Huh. All right. So, Sarah, tell us about your first Apple II and what happened to it. Um, Well, my first Apple II is the Apple IIe that we had growing up. And um, as some of you may know the story, a couple of years ago, um, Ken and I believe Mike were um, driving together across the country and they actually picked it up for me. So it is now back in my apartment. And it's actually my only um, official Apple II that I've owned. Um, We also had a few at school back in the day. 
but yes, it's still alive and kicking. So that was, so they picked it up from your parents' house or it was stored somewhere? Yeah, it was in my parents' basement. And I um, quizzed my siblings and everybody said, sure, it's cool if you take it because we don't want it. So it's mine now. Ha ha ha. And they, they all said, you want the what? <laughs> Pretty much. My brother actually took it for a couple of years. He went to some kind of electronics training and fussed with it. But apparently the guts are still good because they still work. So didn't do too much damage. Very cool. Was it all yellow or was it still, did it still look good? Um, mine was beige, so it looks pretty much the same to me, but I um, I wish we had for the Apple II with like the RetroBrite community, those cards you get when you whiten your teeth, like what the color's supposed to be. So yes. it, <laughs> it looks okay to me, but I don't actually know. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's beige, but it was originally beige. It was I didn't have the fancy platinum or anything like that. Right on. Yeah, I've got a couple Apple IIs that I'm wondering if I should RetroBrite, but I don't have the guts to because I don't really know how far off they are. The change is so gradual that I'm a little mm-hmm. scared to, to attempt that. Uh, all right, Carrington, you're up. First Apple II, and what happened to it? To be honest, I don't know what happened to it. I know my first Apple II was an Apple II. I think it was a 2 Plus. Maybe it was an original two. It's so long ago. I'm so old. Uh, um, yeah, we know. I, <laughs> I believe it was my third computer, though. But it was the first one that like I understood and really did something with. So it like meant everything to me. So you would think I would know what happened to it, but I don't. It probably got sold. Um, I know I had done a bunch of upgrades on it. And then at some point, I was at university, and I didn't own it anymore. So it went away. Mm-hmm. Alas. Do you know what happened to your hair? <laughs> yeah, it also went away. Yeah, yeah so it, much it, it just was actually a part of a bundle deal with the computer. <laughs> oh, okay. Sold at a garage sale, 99 yes. cents. So all gone. Creepiest um, eBay yeah. auction ever. <laughs> yeah. of, of that year. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, so I guess I'll, I'll fill in for Mike as the fourth panelist. Uh, my first Apple II was our family's 2 Plus, and uh, it is still in my parents' basement. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to get uh, over there and dig it out. All right, so that was the easy ones. Now we get uh, to some juicy, interesting ones. Uh, oh, no, I lied. I have one more softball. All right, let me lob this one at you guys. Uh, what was Apple II news, event, or product are you looking forward to in 2015? Sheppy, go. You know, I, I don't I don't know if I could name something specific. I'm just always fascinated to see what the hardware guys come up with next i'm a software guy like everybody knows that you know back in remember back I, well none of us remember these days but you know how back in the old days the the computer would be in one room and the operators were kept away from it in another room mm-hmm. for fear of damaging the equipment <laughs> yeah. that's me totally they, <laughs> they don't let me actually into the same room with computers because i might hurt them <laughs> awesome and so you know hardware kind of fascinates me that way uh and so i'm always looking forward to seeing what comes next so do you sit as far away from the keyboard as you can? No, ironically enough, I hunch over them, which is probably why I have like 18 broken keyboards in my office. Ah, maybe you need some sort of lead shield between you and the computers to make sure you don't possible. unduly influence it in some way. Uh, all right, Sarah, any, uh, anything you're looking forward to this year? Um, yeah, I'm actually hoping to go to Kansas Fest again. I'm probably about like 75, 80% certainty just based on a couple of things like how much vacation time I can get and some logistics, but it looks like I'm going to be able to go. So I'm very excited about that. Are you going to be running another session uh, like this year? I don't know. We were actually just talking about that before the call, and um, I don't know if I have anything else to run. I guess I could run my session again, but we can yeah. we'll see how it goes. 
that's worth thinking about. I mean, I think there might be some people who didn't uh, attend your session but didn't realize how awesome it was going to be because uh, a couple of us finished our ornaments and others were very jealous when they saw them. Yes, that's true. I'll have to decide if... Um, the only downside is if I bring stuff with me, then I have less room for parts. And that I still have, like, my disk drive I forgot to bring that I still need to fix and fun stuff like that. But we'll, we'll see what happens. And for our listeners who may not know, Sarah ran a uh, session at KFest this year where we got to make ornaments uh, with this sort of uh, plastic canvas cross-stitch technique. And uh, so we got to make little Apple IIe's, uh, including optional duo disk drives. And they hang on a little string for your holiday tree or your festivist pole or whatever you might like to hang it from. And it was lots of fun to make. Or, or in my case, it would be my, my uh, Carrington stick. It right. stands in the corner and I hang <laughs> ornaments on yeah. it. And then I bow down and worship the Carrington. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I could put it on my Carrington altar. You know, it, it does need a little something on that one corner. Uh, the, the, I did say cult of personality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mostly I like... Machine? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mostly I like the candles. Uh, so, you know, those you uh, I, I keep those lit as, as a vigil. That is acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> so, s- speaking of the devil, Carrington. <laughs> um, like Sheppy, I am a software guy. And so, like Sheppy, I admire and am in awe of the hardware guys and gals who do these things that I'm like, how, how did that become a thing? So often what I'm looking forward to most of all is what people will make um, that's physical and hardware. So that would be the case now. I, the things top of my mind are the Ethernet 2, which has been bumped to the end of next year. So I can look forward to it all the way until November of 2015. And um, I want to get another CFA 3000 board. Oh, no, so that's the one I guess has been bumped to November. Everything's yes. been bumped till forever. But Ethernet 2 and CFA 3000 redo. Um, I'm keen on those. And sort of related to the Apple II, I'm excited about the 6502-based hobbyist development board that mm-hmm. got sort of talked about at, at Kansas Fest, the one from WDC. So mm-hmm. when that comes out, I want one, and I want to play with it. Yeah, once again, for anyone who was not at KFest, I sort of made an informal announcement uh, on behalf of uh, Western Design Center that they're making an Arduino-style hobbyist electronic board based around the 6502, uh, which, of course, they still make. And uh, it looks like a really, really cool board. Good answer from everyone. My answer, I guess, is similar to a lot of you. Uh, Also being a software person, hardware is quite a bit of magic to me, and I'm quite excited about what Reactive Micro is up to these days. They're they're kind of back from their slumber with a bang. They're making some awesome stuff, including remaking the Transwarp card, which uh, I think is just utterly fantastic, so really looking forward to that. It will surely decimate the Transwarp market on eBay, and I'm also definitely looking forward to KFast. I've got it blocked out in my calendar, so very excited for that. All right, so let's do some more interesting questions, shall we? If you were forced to trade in your Apple II for a different retro computer, what would it be and why? Eric, you're up. Uh, let's see. If I had to do that, I would probably be looking at like one of the the like mid mid range Cray models, maybe, or oh, wow. a, um, something like that. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I need I need a an enormous supercomputer for my new house. <laughs> that is not an answer I was expecting, but I love it. Uh, wow. Okay. I used to uh, I used to do IT for Silicon Graphics, and it was right at nice. the tail end of the acquisition of Cray, and mm. uh, so I got to play with some of their uh, some of the later models like the T3 and whatnot. And uh, the liquid cooled ones were really cool because uh, in order to you know fix a hard drive or to update RAM or anything, you had to drain the coolant out of them first. Uh, so it was uh, it was very much like working on a car. The uh, 
RAM change procedure required a bucket. So how about you, Sarah? If you had to pick a different retro computer, what would it be? It probably counts as cheating to say I would just trade in my Apple II for an Apple II um, GS because I never had one and it's all yep. fancy and upgrading. Uh, Sorry, still an Apple II. I know. That is cheating. But if I couldn't do that, I don't that, believe then, that's um, cheating at all. She is trading in an Apple II for Says another retro sweet computer. 16 guy. <laughs> for a different retro Y'all computer. Y'all and your fancy Apple II GSs. Um, no, but yeah. if I couldn't have one of those, then I'd probably go with like an Atari or a C64 just because I never had one and just to have exposure to it and get a chance to play with it and try something different. All right, I'll buy that. What do you think you would do with uh, either one of those, let's say? Um, probably the same thing I do with my Apple II, learn to write some code and play games on it and maybe compare and contrast, like, well, how does this game work if there are games that were ported to both? Plus, you could get a lot of reading done, you know, while waiting for your Commodore to load anything. That's true, and I could probably make a model of it, which technically I actually kind of owe somebody one that's on my list of backlog projects. (laughs) But I still need to get some uh, source pictures, so I'm working on that. My favorite part of your answer is it gave me a chance to make a dig at Commodore. Oh, yes. (laughs) Any chance I can get. Always. Yes. Carrington, caveat on your answer, your answer cannot be Atari 800 either. (laughs) It wouldn't be. I do have one of those. Exactly. And um, so it wouldn't be fair. I... Like Sheppy would probably lean towards Big Iron if I if it has to be something old, go to like a, then I'll take the Univac. Um, but the reality <laughs> is, if we're a more straightforward answer, I think would be if I was like straight ahead normal, you know, not like I'll take an Apple One and then I'll buy all the other computers. Um, <laughs> Ooh, that's a good think, answer. I want that answer. <laughs> there you go. Probably no. I I think honestly, I think I'd say the the TRS eighty Model Three. Mm-hmm. I I like the. The industrial design of it, it looks like the kind of computer that I like. Um, so, yeah, if I had to play around with one, it's that. But honestly, nothing would make me happy like an Apple II does. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answers. Yeah, I guess my choice would probably be an Amiga 500, I think. Um, that's sort of... Amigas are one of those computers that I always was super, super interested in and jealous of people that had them at the time, but uh, just could never get access to one. And I've always been really interested in them. Uh, you know, there's the hardware on them is so interesting. So uh, one of these days, I think I might just have to try and track one of those down. Uh, all right, let's see. Moving along... How about this one? Which Apple II model do you like the least, and why? Sheppy. Uh, that one's actually pretty easy for me. Uh, it is the, and I'm going to get all kinds of, I mean, I'm going to get like hate mail for it, but it's the original uh, five and a quarter inch models, and I mean all of them, all the five and a quarter inch models of the Apple IIc. I hate them. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, I would hate them, hate them, but I've had nothing but problems every time I tried to use one. <laughs> wow. So what kind of problems? drive reliability. Mm. I had terrible times where, you know, I'd take a disk that worked on every other computer on the planet and put it in the 2C and it wouldn't. Did you load. test every computer on the planet? <laughs> yes, I actually I did. Shenanigans. And in fact, the reason why that one time your back door was open, it's <laughs> because I was there testing my uh, disk on your computer. That that entire sentence was euphemisms, by the way. <laughs> Start to end all euphemisms. Yes, and but I'm not going to tell you for what. Yeah, good. Wait, way to raise the bar there, Carrington. <laughs> He's good well, at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're all, we're all, yeah, we're all going to get hate mail for that one. The Apple IIc is among the most uh, beloved of the Apple II. And it's so pretty. It is, including by Waz himself. He has said that uh, the yeah, the IIc is his favorite. I know. Everybody wow. loves the IIc, but me. 
Wow. Well, you can send your hate mail to mcginnis at uh, <laughs> yahoo.com. And I do. Yeah. As, as <laughs> do we all. All right. Uh, moving along, Sarah, what is your least favorite Apple II and why? It's hard to say because I don't know that I know all the Apple IIs yet, which I probably shouldn't admit. Um, but I guess maybe the Gosh. Apple II Plus because it does less than the one that I have. Yeah, fair. That's a fair answer. The unenhanced 2E. It's just cooler, I guess. I still don't know what that means, actually. So, if somebody knows, I'd love to hear what the enhanced, like, how is it enhanced? But well, in fact, we can educate you on that very fact. So, the 2E enhanced. Uh, let's see. Someone help me out here because the details I'm a little fuzzy on. So, the 2E enhanced comes with the. Uh, it's got the. Uh, it comes with the 65 CO2. 128k of RAM. Uh, yeah, and the, the, 80 the, column the card extended eighty column card. Yeah, those are. Oh, the, oh eighty col- You gotta have. And it's got a, a different ROM to support those, but otherwise, I think that's about it. Oh, and uh, double because of the extra RAM and stuff, it does the double high res. Right. Graphics. Yeah, and it's got the uh, the extra character sets as well, so it's got the most text and all that cool stuff. Yeah, it definitely be sad without that. So I guess the unenhanced two E or the two. I think the two plus was before that. Okay. Yeah, I think those. That's a good answer. I mean, the two plus is. It sort of, I mean, it sort of has its own charm, and it was certainly the best of the early twos. And the 2E Enhanced is a great all-around machine. So that, but the 2E Unenhanced is sort of in a weird middle ground where it's not mm-hmm. quite fancy enough for the latest software. But Carrington, how about you? Uh, I am going to pick the 2GS for two reasons. Gasp! It always seems like, I know, what a shocker. I'm really an 8-bit guy, and the 2GS mm-hmm. seems like a dumbed down Macintosh. But mostly I'm picking it because Sheppy picked on the 2C, and yeah. so I'm going to pick the 2GS. <laughs> wow. And nothing if not I'll spiteful. meet you out back after the show. <laughs> More euphemisms from Sheppy. That makes me feel better about not having the fancy schmancy GS now. So, like, I have the enhanced 2E, so it's a little better. It's like mid-range. Uh, okay, so that's good, though. I can cross Carrington off my Christmas list. Uh, and there's so, there's so much that could be talked about after that discussion. That's really interesting. I mean, after that round, uh, there's a lot of uh, debate that could come just out of that. Yeah, you know, I, gosh, that I I'm not I'm not loving the love, not loving the lack of love for the two GS um, from Carrington because uh, that is actually that's my favorite two by yeah. a long shot. It was my it, yeah. yeah, it was my dream machine, and I was I was the happiest. It was the first computer I bought for myself. Yeah, oh, I was so ecstatic when I got that thing, and it's mm-hmm. to this day the favorite of yeah. any machine I've ever owned. Just uh, I mean, it had a it had a sort of sense of wonder about it that I don't think. It, I've gotten from a computer sense. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wonder sometimes if if that sense of of uh, wonder and that sense of uh, awesomeness would have persisted if it hadn't been the the last, you know, the most advanced model. You know, if yeah. there had been another machine after, you know, an app, an Apple II XL or whatever you want to call it, if if it would have changed the perception of the of the 2gs would the people who were like oh you know that's you know that last one that you know had all that whiz bangery we don't like whiz bangery would those <laughs> those people view the gs differently in that circumstance that kind of thing i wonder maybe because it's an outlier when it comes yeah. to the apple II line yeah that's a really good question yeah i wonder also because yeah i mean nowadays computers of course have you know ever increasingly amazing specs mm-hmm. and it but it doesn't inspire a sense of wonder because it's like oh right. well my graphics card has a thousand more polygons now or whatever it does it's just not a big deal but i think for me it was the first computer that 
did impressive things. You know, it had real sound and real graphics. And so I think in some sense, it's just sort of relative to the other Apple IIs. It was so amazing because older Apple IIs were all pretty heavy on the compromises, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, and, and, and I look at it like the, the GS, it was, it was a, uh, it was for me, literally the first and the last time that a computer was an enormous leap forward from Mm -hmm. the previous generation, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Everything before and everything since has been just iteration. Now, rapid iteration that has gone amazing places, but still just iteration. Yeah, I, I agree totally. The the GS a, a line was crossed there. You know, it, mm-hmm. the the fidelity of the graphics and the sound and everything. It's uh, it was the first time where we got, I think, a taste of what computers were going to do. Uh, so it was uh, it was such a huge leap over over the TUI that uh, it was it was really something. I mean, there was this sort of second wave of computers i guess you might call them the 16-bit wave the amiga and atari st and they had such amazing graphics the fact that you could just show any color on any pixel you wanted for the most part and you could just play sounds and they didn't sound horrible and that sort of uh almost completely uncompromising multimedia experience so the gs was kind of late to that party but by far you know the the first kind of time it came to an apple so that uh that was pretty amazing i think at the time and uh it was uh, like i say the earlier apple twos were really heavy on compromise you know well it had color graphics but it was four or six kind of weird colors and you couldn't show them on anywhere you wanted and there was weird artifacts and it was all very compromising and yes it had sound but it was really terrible and you couldn't play it without stalling the cpu and it was just really heavy again on the compromises whereas the gs aside from the clock speed which was certainly too low the uh you know which could certainly be fixed with a, a transwarp the uh everything else was just really quite uncompromising i think from a, a media standpoint yeah, you kids and your newfangled GSs with color <laughs> and your, you know, I had, I'm, I'm monochrome, so I'm like, back when I was your age, I had a monochrome computer and we liked it. <laughs> I had to carry it to school both ways. Uphill in the snow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the GS was also, I mean, from a hardware standpoint, distinctly modern in a lot of ways. I mean, the CPU supported modern operating system constructs, you know, relocatable code and uh, programmable interrupts and, uh, you know, even some, some limited preemptive multitasking and so on was possible. Some real memory management was possible. So it was... It was definitely a line being crossed from computers as a one-thing-at-a-time toy to a system of tools that could be used, you know, in a complica- complicated way. So, Oh, Carrington, you see, you, 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 just, all wrong. you just haven't seen the GS light. Uh, I've seen it, and it's a blue light around the edge of the monitor, and it drives me crazy. But border effects, come on, that FTA Christmas demo is just face-melting. Nah, see, I'm just I'm coming from a different place where my my love of the vintage Apple II's is all about their difference from the Macs and PCs I sit in front of all day, and I maybe it's a GSOS thing or something, but mm-hmm. to me it's just that seems like an a old not great version of what I use every day versus I want it to be a command line. I want it to be like the best of the older type thing, mm-hmm. not the first of the new type thing that I'm on now. Yeah. Well, you know so the way I, the, the way I look at it though, with with GSOS is that it it did things at the time that shouldn't have been possible on the hardware they were doing it on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, things with uh, you know the uh, support for multiple file systems all at the same time and and 
some of the the impressive things they were doing with with uh, interrupt driven events and things like that they were able to make it work in a way that it shouldn't have been able to i mean there were things it did faster than than max two three times the processor speed and print drivers that were vastly superior to those on the mac things like that so it was really an interesting an interesting place for it to be and uh, i i wonder often how it would have evolved further if if apple had chosen to go that way and yeah i agree it's uh, it felt like at the time you know we talked about how the gs was sort of the end of the line but at the time it felt like the start of something it felt mm-hmm. like those of us who used it you know when they were still new it felt like the next big thing and of course little did we know especially those of us that weren't really in the loop on apple's politics little did we know you know how doomed it was but it felt like oh this is so amazing i can't wait to see where they go with this yeah. <laughs> turns out yeah turns out they went nowhere in 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 retrospect you know looking back on it with multiple decades of maturity i guess you could call it i i see that it was the that discontinuing the Apple II was probably the only right move they could make. They may not have handled it as well as they should have. In fact, I absolutely, they should have handled it differently. But given the technology available at the time, trying to stretch the capabilities of the Apple II any farther would have limited them in ways that could have doomed Apple over the long haul, I think. And that's a controversial statement for an Apple II <laughs> junkie like me to say, but I think it's probably true. Yeah, I would agree completely. It, it was, again, I, I'm going to get hate mail for, for saying this, but it, it was a dead-end architecture. It really was. You know, you won't get hate mail from me. <laughs> the, 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 the 65XX architecture just wasn't going anywhere. You know, this the 816 was a good chip, but it wasn't a fully modern chip in the way right. that, you know, the x86 chips and, and 68,000s and so on were, so... Now, I think that that could have been totally different if uh, risk-style architectures had existed at the time. They could have done something where it had an Apple II emulation mode, but then switched into a, like a fully 32-bit Uber mode, you know, that was totally unrelated to classic Apple IIs. But then would it have really been an Apple II anymore? And that's, a that's you know, a question. Uh, but it's still, um, you know, they possibly could have continued the line in some respect that way. But given what they had available at the time, it just wasn't feasible. Yeah, and to Carrington's point, if you view it from, say, a GSOS kind of GUI point of view, yeah, it's just sort of like a crappy old Mac. And I, I definitely get that. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in old Macs for that reason, for that same reason. It just feels like using a crappy old version of my current computer, and that isn't very interesting. But my experience with the GS was primarily as a game machine and as a demo playing machine, you know, the Ninja Force demos and Delta and so on. And I was quite into that. And also just, you know, as as a tool for learning to program, you know, my machine didn't boot into GSOS. I booted it into uh, the the GNO environment and the Orca uh, set of tools. So, you know, it was definitely a a different experience from that standpoint. I was never a huge fan of GSOS either. I used it for a few things when necessary, but it wasn't certainly my choice. So uh, how about you, Sarah? Any thoughts on all that? No, not really. Uh, (laughs) I think I'm, uh, we're all definitely not hardware people, so... And a lot of yeah. that stuff I just wasn't really exposed to. But I think I, I could kind of see the sentiment of feeling like it's like your Mac style. And, but it's it's this funny thing, even going to Kansas Fest this year, of 
always felt like, oh, I just have this little Apple II, and, you know, maybe someday I'll have a Duo Desk. I'm like, ooh, people have them, and it still feels so fancy. These fancy GSs and these fancy color yeah. monitors. So, um, but it's like, I could actually get one now, so... If somebody showed up at the at Kansas Fest with like an original Apple II or two plus, but an original Apple II even more so, it would be like the GS people would be like all hovering around it, all curious about it because you know. Then we could take their GSs while they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, I I have actually, I personally have never even seen a an original Apple II. Me too. Yeah, me Not neither. An original, original. The first early Apple one. I ever used was a two plus. They had them at school, but I never actually saw an original two. And so, if I saw one of those at Kansas Fest, I'd be like all over it. Yeah, I'm the same way. Actually, I'm trying to talk Mike into bringing his Rev Zero Apple Two to K Fest because I oh, want to wow, see it. Oh wow, that would be sweet. Yeah, I just think it's neat to be exposed to different things, like just to see what they look like and see how they interacted, even if they're annoying or boring. So that's that's fun for me just to get the range of what all the old tools were like but i mean back in college we were using more like x terms and deck terminals so i think that's probably the closest i had to that windows slash command line cool well good answers from everybody except carrington that was a fun (laughs) question all right my next question let's see name a piece of apple II software that you loved that nobody else seems to have heard of i think we all have one of these eric gosh oh you know i actually have no idea because I don't know what other people haven't heard of. You could make it up, yeah, or <laughs> yeah, something really obscure good. that you used or liked that you don't Why see it's around. Flame writer. Flame writer. What's that? You said I could make something up. Oh, <laughs> don't listen to Carrington. Oh uh, yeah, probably. Do not listen to Carrington. I'm, I'm just going to turn off his mic. <laughs> you know what? Come back to me. I got to think about this. <laughs> all right. Before. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking on you as first all the time, which isn't very fair. So, all right, we'll flip it around. Carrington, go. I think Sarah and I like the fact that you went with him yeah. first every time. You yeah, know, I actually kind of like it too normally, <laughs> but this time, no, I don't. Uh, I don't know how obscure it is because I think I talked about it on one of my podcasts. But for me, it's the game, well, quote unquote game called Portal. Um, by Activision, not the portal that everybody played a few years ago, which was great as well, part of the orange box, but the the old, um, essentially interactive novel that came out for the Apple II and other um, applic- other program, um, other computers as well. Uh, I, it it rocked my world and sort of changed the way I viewed um, fiction and and especially interactive fiction. Uh, it was just, it was huge and mind-blowing, and nobody seems to know it or play it, and, and I adore it. So, And it never shows up on eBay. Believe me, I constantly look. Well, that's a great answer. The, the only reason I know that game is because Jimmy Marr over at the Digital Antiquarian recently did an article on that game, and when I saw it, I had never heard of it. So, And you're the only other person I've ever heard of mention it. That's why I picked it. It's obscure. <laughs> do you, Eric and Sarah, do you know that game? Have you played it or Actually, seen it? Actually, I haven't. I've heard Carrington talk about it, but that's it. <laughs> I am its champion. He he may have made it up. <laughs> that's a, there's a good chance. <laughs> he's he's planted the seeds of it all over the internet so that Jimmy could find them and write an article about it unknowingly. Right. Yep. Evil evil man, Sarah. How about you? Well, actually, if you'd asked me four months ago, I would have said the Coveted Mirror by Penguin Software, which is actually my favorite game pretty much ever. But now having gone to Kansas Fest and meeting people that have heard of it was also just very awesome. And um, But the second obscure software we had was The Spies Adventures in North America, which was kind of a knockoff Carmen Sandiego, which I think was either Penguin or Polarware had gotten bought out by them. But we had a lot of fun with that, and I don't remember anybody else talking about it. 
Wow, another good answer. And actually, another one that was recently covered by Jimmy Marr over at the Digital Antiquarian. Uh, it's a great blog, obviously. Oh, cool. Let's go check that out. And yeah, so he did a story on Carmen Sandiego, and at least I think it was I think it was his blog. There was a story on Carmen Sandiego, and one of the commenters posted uh, sort of a an alternate perspective on the whole story of that game, because there's quite a bit of drama be- uh, between the creators of Carmen Sandiego and creators of, of the, uh, that game you just mentioned, whose name I've already forgotten. Spy- Spies Adventures in North America. Yes, yeah, Spies Adventures in North America. I guess uh, one of the, the Spies Adventures creators had the idea first, and the details, of course, are, are contested, but apparently they had made this game and uh, had suggested it to Broderbund, and they said no, and then three or four weeks later, some short amount of time later, Carmen San Diego came out and yeah, it was all quite uh, quite a bit of drama there. I guess there was some lawsuits and still some bitterness to this day and uh, there's some competing kind of entries uh, on the internet about the history of each product and they differ in some interesting details so uh, we may never know the truth of exactly what happened there, but excellent, excellent choice. Wow, I didn't know there was so much drama. I'll have to go check that out. Yeah, go to go get head over to Jimmy Marr's blog. Uh, I will try and find a link to that for the show notes if I can. All right, Sheppy, you've had time to think. What do you got for us? The original Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, the mm-hmm. great movie monster game. It was remade sometime later, but uh, I'm talking like way back the ninety, the back uh, like early 1980s and 81, 82 time frame. Uh, we had it on the computer at school and got to play it from time to time. It was yeah, awesome. I, rem- I do remember that game. That uh, One of my friends in school had that game, and it was, it was one of the few games that I never managed to actually copy, uh, despite many, many attempts with Copy <laughs> 2 Plus and Locksmith and so on. So uh, I just ended up borrowing it as much as I could. But yeah, that one was really great, actually. That, if I'm thinking of the right game, it was it had sort of an isometric view of the city. Yeah. And you were controlling the big movie monsters, and you just right. kind of went, ran around crushing things. Yeah, it was... Yep. You went around, and you decided... What, what buildings to try to knock down or cars to eat or whatever it was. And it was a blast. Great looking game, too, for the time, at least. It, uh... Well, and, you know, and, and I was exactly the, the demographic for it because I was like a, what, a, a 9, 10, 9 or 10 year old boy in particular back in, you know, 1981. It was like crush, smash, destroy. I, w- I was like a Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys are talking about different games. Maybe, are we? Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, I think, was an Epic's game, like yes. eighty eighty one, and I think when you're talking about the movie monster game, yes, which was also yes. Epic's, but I think that's like eighty five or eighty six. Eighty six. Because that's yeah, the it was, re- it was a remake. Okay. Yes. All right. I know my games. There were a lot of similarities. They weren't quite exactly the same, but um, even the original one was uh, was relatively uh, impressive. I thought, especially at the time. Uh, it was actually, you know, it was a blast. It was so much fun to play, and I think uh, uh, that would be my my choice. That's a great one. Yeah, Crush, Crumble, and Chomp is a is a fantastic game. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't actually realize there was sort of two versions of that game. I I always had heard about both of them. But I sort of assumed everybody was talking about the the movie monster game, the the latter one. Yeah. So and yeah, which honestly, both of them are definitely good examples of underappreciated games. They uh, are ones that you never hear about in uh, on the blogs and so on. Excellent choice. Uh, let's see. I guess I'm really just fishing for content here for our weird gaming segment on on the show. Uh, my choice. Well, let's see. I've got a couple that I'm going to throw out 
one of them, of course, is no longer obscure or unheard of because I used it on our last month's segment of Weird Gaming, and that was the Task Force Swear Hack. Eric, you were a GS person. Did you ever you play Task Force? Oh, I loved Task Force. Awesome. I played the, the hell out of that game. It was actually... That was an incredibly impressive game, and it was one that really sold me on the potential for the GS to be a great gaming machine in a way it didn't quite achieve because of uh, the tides of how Apple handled certain things and whatnot, but it was really awesome. Yeah, for sure. I always like to say how there were sort of three tiers of GS games. There was the crappy 8-bit ports, and then there was the games that were made originally for the GS, but were just sort of done in a naive way. So they had 16 colors and they were just sort of low frame rate and they looked kind of pretty in screenshots, but there wasn't much there and they were kind of crippled by the the low clock speed. And then there was that third tier of games from, you know, groups like uh, the Toolbox folks and FTA and, and Ninja Force and so on, where they did all of the tricks that were needed to get quality, you know, full screen scrolling, large sprites yeah. and everything. And Task Force was thoroughly in that third camp. So I, I've always lumped Task Force in this collection of really fantastic GS games with uh, like Thexter and uh, Sylphie. Those were so well done in terms of handling, you know, GS graphics and sound capabilities in a way that just blended together and really put out a game that was better than the platform should have been able to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Rastan was another mm-hmm. good example of that, or Sensei, which we talked about a couple months ago mm-hmm. on, on Open Apple. So, yeah. Uh, so the Task Force Swear Hack, for anyone who may not have listened to last month's show, was a version of Task Force that someone put out that had all of the audio replaced with naughty words. And <laughs> it made for a very kind of adult experience. And uh, it was one that uh, we, lo- I mean, me and my friends loved it to death and we played it uh, exclusively as soon as we found it, of course, tittering with glee the whole time. <laughs> and uh, nearly to this day, I've yet to find anyone else who's ever heard of it. Now, uh, recently on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, the, it came up after our last month's episode, and someone else in the group had, in fact, heard of it, and in fact, had a copy of it that they imaged. So that's very exciting. That was something that I was afraid was going to be lost to history. I still have the floppy of it, but it's buried in a basement somewhere and uh, may or may not still be readable. So that's my first one, which I'll throw out now. The second one I want to throw out is another GS game called Life and Death. And uh-huh. a lot of people know this one from other platforms, but it's a game that a lot of people, I think, may not realize was on the GS. And it was a very bizarre surgery game of the sort that you never saw before and uh, rarely since. So you played the role of a surgeon and you had to actually perform surgeries on patients. And it was all very realistic and graphic. You had to apply the antiseptics and the scalpel and there was lots of blood and things. It was all quite, uh, quite gnarly. And especially if, like so many of us, you pirated all of these games and didn't have any instructions. <laughs> so you, for, you had to do everything exactly right or the patient died. So there was you a... You killed a lot of people, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. The, oh, the horror. You, you have no idea. And uh, it had a lot of very strange quirks, like the patient would get an infection if your scalpel cuts weren't very clean and nice. But you had to do this with the 2GS mouse, which was not 
very easy to make a clean and nice line with the 2GS mouse. And so there was lots of senseless death from that. <laughs> so to all of those virtual people, I'm very sorry. I think I did finally succeed in getting an appendix out. That was the introductory surgery, and it went up from there as you became a more advanced doctor in this hospital. But uh, yeah, it was a very expensive lesson to get there for many, many, many Yeah, I always people. thought that was a very strange idea for a game. Uh, I remember looking at the ads for that nibble and going, what? <laughs> Why would anybody want to do this? Yeah, the ads were pr- a, a bit disturbing, actually. Lots of lots of blood and gore there as well. Did anybody else uh, ever see this game? No, I've never heard of it. What was the name of it again? Life and Death. Wow. It's a GS game. Yeah. <laughs> what well, was actually available on several platforms? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it was. I think it gained popularity on the Amiga, and uh, it was one yeah. of those ones. Was yeah, it was one of those. It was on the Amiga and the uh, Atari ST and GS and a couple of others, I think. Yeah, fun stuff. All right. So uh, the last question I have for everybody is kind of a fun one. So recently, we found out that Seth Rogen is possibly lined up to play Waz in the new Jobs movie, the formerly known as the Christian Bale Jobs movie, now the Jobs movie looking for a lead actor. Mike and I were wondering if there was a Waz movie, which of course we all think there should be, since these movies are all completely ignoring the first decade of the company's existence. If there was a Waz movie, who would you choose to play Waz in the Waz movie and why? I'm going to start with Sarah this time. Oh, jeez. Oh, that's a hard <laughs> question. But I always cringe at the people they pick because I always pick actors mm. I really dislike to play mm. people I like, and it makes me sad. Um, yeah. I'm going to have to think about that. I don't, I mean, I, I feel like Waz should play Waz, and especially he's been <laughs> on TV now and Dancing with the Stars, but um, I probably have to think of a real actor. All right. Uh, we'll pass on you for the moment. How about, uh, how about you, Carrington? I think people should think outside the box and not necessarily cast somebody who just looks like Waz, but mm-hmm. who could like embody the essence and creativity of Waz. And so I pick you, Quinn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> totally, I would completely go the other way, cast Quinn, make a splash, make a million. Wow, bold choice. Let's make a movie. All right. Well, I'm on board. Uh, assuming I can get a nice trailer. I, I, I want one of those like Ted Danson trailers with like the multiple <laughs> fireplaces. Naturally, very important. It's not very wise of you, though. <laughs> that's true. Well, but they, but that's how good an actress I am. You see, see what a great choice I made in right. casting. Now. Sure. How about you, Chevy? Uh, you know, I'm th- I'm thinking maybe um, Jason Siegel or um, or even Noah Wiley could do it. And I know he's played um, Jobs, but I-, I could see him pulling off a was too, especially yeah. an early, much thinner was. Yeah, Noah Wiley. I, I like that choice a lot. Hmm, very interesting. Imagining him with a beard, I think that works quite well as a, as an early was. How about you, Sarah? All right, I'm still thinking, but I'm probably, it would have to be somebody British. <laughs> just because, I don't know, British actors just seem cooler to me and more funny. Oh, I can't think of his name. Maybe the guy who plays Manny on Black Books. That guy would be cool. Hmm, don't think I know him. Yeah, he's also in, um, oh, what is it? The zombie movie, Shaun of the Dead. Oh, okay. That guy. <laughs> oh, um, those, Nick Frost. Those, uh... Maybe? That doesn't sound right. The guy with the long hair. Anyway, we'll have to IMDb it later. <laughs> but yeah, probably somebody British, just for kicks. Why not? Actually, you know what? Uh, Pegs. Yeah, not I Simon think Pegg. He he's Simon one of Pegg. the more... He's not in as many of those movies. Yeah, I know, but I think Simon Pegg could totally do it, though. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I should maybe. <laughs> you just made me think of him because you mentioned okay. Shaun of the Dead. Right. I think get a get a beard and a wig and, and let's also shake things up and cast Steve Ballmer as Walt. <laughs> oh my God. And make him learn the proper way to do these things. <laughs> developers, so developers, wrong. developers. <laughs> but I'd go see it. I have to lobotomize myself now having heard you say that. <laughs> Who's that man with the sweaty armpits and the fake beard? Oh, it's supposed to be Waz. Okay. <laughs> oh. uh, so I think my choice would be, uh, anybody here watch Halt and Catch Fire? Not yet. It's on my list. So the the guy who plays the engineer in that show, I don't know which actor it is, but when I watch that show, it just it, to me it looks exactly like a young Waz, and of course he's got the engineering thing down. So that would be my choice. Does anyone know that actor? I've never even heard of the show. Ah, okay. So really? Halt and Catch Fire. It was on. They they finished their first season a couple of months ago on AMC, and it's kind of a gritty drama in the style of. It's like a like a modern like a, like the Good Wife or I would say The Walking Dead, but it's not obviously gory and filled with death. But that same sort of gritty lighting and visual style. But it's about the period uh, of uh, the early kind of eighties or mid eighties, I guess, roughly following the story of Compaq. These uh, two two f- uh, folks who are trying to build a competitor to IBM using cloning the BIOS and various other. Uh, dramatic things. It's it's a decent show. Uh, it's it's gotten quite a bit of play amongst us retro computing people since we like to pick apart the facts and see if they got all their dates and places right. And there's also a lot of fun retro computers in the background, so it's kind of fun to see what's sitting on people's desks and so on. It kind of lost me a bit at the end, though. We've got super drama, <laughs> like with actual fire and stuff. So like, <laughs> it did, yeah. And we were all kind of afraid that was going to happen, and whether they were just going to let the interesting historical events speak for themselves or whether they were going to Hollywood it up. And, well, I think we know at what happened. At the very end, they Hollywooded it up, I think for uh, ratings, but I was a little disappointed. Yeah, there's. I think there's some doubt as to whether it's coming back. I don't. It, it must not have worked for the ratings thing because I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, clearly they <laughs> failed at their job since you are clearly the center of their target demographic. Exactly. Absolutely. I totally yeah, would have watched this thing if I yeah. Heard of it, but yeah, yeah, they they tried to make our beloved period in computer history interesting to the normals, and that may not be possible. I think maybe if it had been an HBO show instead of AMC as well, like HBO has sort of more clout and more marketing and more maybe. presence. So Although I mean, AMC's got you know Mad Men and The Walking Dead and all that stuff going on these days, well, so right. they're not exactly right. ignored by the public. So. Yeah, I had high hopes for it because AMC has been doing some really bold things in the past few years with kind of this new gilded age of television, as they say. And uh, yeah, it was high. it's certainly nicely produced. You know, it's very visually interesting film or film TV show. And there is a lot of a lot of the history is close enough kind of thing. Uh, they certainly capture the feel of that period of fly by night and early startup computer companies but uh yeah they seem to be trying a little too hard to to ramp up the drama there's some crazy romances and things that don't make sense and uh every there's a lot of people yelling at each other and marriages collapsing for no good reason and so yeah they tried to cram a, it's only i think the first season was only something like eight episodes and they tried to cram an awful lot of drama into those uh few episodes so that may have been again a ratings gambit that didn't quite pay off uh, well, that is the last question I have. Any other topics of conversation burning in anyone's minds for the end of 2014? Okay, I just looked it up because it was bothering me. It's Bill Bailey. 
Ah, okay, good. Oh, he's fantastic. I love Bill Bailey. Yes, I could totally see him as a wise. He's very funny. He'd be all set. Yeah, he's got the look. Uh, he looks just Al like Al Yankovic wise. as Waz. <gasps> oh, that would oh, be awesome. Oh, good. I like that. That would be yeah. kick-ass. <laughs> that would totally be amazing. It'd have to be a musical. <laughs> Waz the musical. I like that. Waz oh. the musical. Waz would like that, too. He would. They had Cartoon musical. Would. Why not? <laughs> in fact, you could put what Waz in a bit part, you know, background oh, dancing. Yes, kind of, of course. Thing. He'd have to have a cameo in the movie, <laughs> for sure. He could play himself in a in a uh, uh, flash forward or a, in a in a weird uh, exhaustion fueled dream of uh, things yet to come be awesome <laughs> i just want to see bill bailey up in front of a crowd telling stories about buying 2 dollar bills by the sheet <laughs> and cutting them apart and giving them to people I love the perforated sheets <laughs> of 2 dollar bills <laughs> i right. love that story it's a great story uh, I wish I was cool enough to do that. The fact that, you know, I'm I'm not cool enough to do things Waz does tells you a lot about how cool I'm not. Mm, yeah, you're in good company here, I think. Well, except for Carrington. He's cool. Yeah, I'm pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's because he doesn't have the hair. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm too cool for hair. <laughs> well, no, it's a matter of, you know, warm. You know, it's just, just ther- yeah, your thermal mass and yeah, thermal dissipation mass. is higher. Yeah. Did you guys just wear toques up there? Most of the time, yeah. Now, for instance. <laughs> do they just slide right off your head because there's nothing? Do you have to use, like, double-stick tape or something? To... No, they stay. Oh. It's, it's toque. <laughs> hey, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. You're as Canadian as me. I am, although I don't currently uh, own any toques. No, that's not true. I do have a couple. I just never wear them. There you go. Because I was smart enough to move south. All right, so before we wrap it up, any last thoughts for 2014 from our panel of Apple II enthusiasts? I found it a very exciting year in particular for software stuff. Like there's the whole development stack that's been floating around now that makes it way easier to make stuff, which I found very exciting. But mostly it's been like not just last year, Martin Hay putting out a game, but like Brian Peachy's games this year, mm-hmm. like having real new games on real discs sold in real baggies mm-hmm. is super crazy exciting to me and inspiring. So like that kind of stuff um, happened this year and it's, I, I think it's just totally amazing. So um, I'm looking forward to that continuing. It inspires me to try to, you know, pump out a game or something. And I'm just, for me, that was a real high point of the year. So 2014 is very much a year of new software. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because the software doesn't get quite the press that the hardware does, but like you say, yeah, Brian Peachy put out two new games from scratch that are actually both great. And there was another fellow whose name escapes me on the Apple II Facebook group who has just put out another game. Uh, I believe it's called Genius uh, that also really looks great. And, you know, these are old school games, regular high-res graphics in the works, uh, really lots of effort there. And, and yeah, you mentioned the development stack, which, of course, you and I were both involved with. And I like that story because it's really the best of the community you know it was something that where you know one of us started it and someone else took it and built on it and someone else took that and built on it and the end result is greater than the sum of its parts and uh, sort of the power of community and open source and everything coming together to make something that hopefully will benefit lots of people so uh, yeah and you know and 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 that's the sort of thing which which could be an enabler to make 2015 an even more amazing year right because now that the uh tooling exists to make it easier for people to do uh, development projects, programming projects for the Apple II, and to do it faster and more efficiently. Hopefully, we'll see even more cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, there will be a kind of a snowball effect there 
give people a little bit of a leg up. Yeah, I think it was an exciting year. Um, I got to go to my first Kansas Fest, yay. But I feel like I'm getting caught up now because I'm like just getting my head a little bit around hardware and starting to poke at stuff, so that's pretty cool. And I know it's um, not to be too much of a downer, and we had a lot of good luminaries pass away this year, but um, yeah. when I heard that Ralph, is it Bear, passed away, mm-hmm. I remembered that we did have a Magnavox Odyssey 300, so I think that's my next like digging in my parents' basement over the holidays thing to see if it's still there. So that'll be interesting if I turn it up. Nice. And yeah, and also both uh, Bob Bishop and Doug Smith passed away yeah. this year, which yes. yeah. a real bummer in both cases. Yep. And Mike Pfeiffer from Call PPLE as well. Yep. That's right. That is, alas, the nature of the uh, this this hobby because it's, you know, old school, literally. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Mike and I have talked about that, that unfortunately there's gonna, there's, that's going to get worse before it gets better. There's, uh, we're just at that age where the people that created this world that, that we love so much are now at a, are not getting any younger. So hopefully, uh, and yet there's more documenting going on than ever. Mm-hmm. Like there's the stuff at archive.org and all these podcasts and like so many things out there that are at least sort of last minute grabbing and archiving things. So that's exciting. And actually, you know, the thing that I was most impressed by uh, in 2014, and I can't believe I didn't think of it earlier, is the uh, uh, the JSMS project. Uh, oh, yeah. Build, building, you know, emulation, you know, using JavaScript and, and HTML5 in a browser is freaking kick-ass. And I say that both as a fan of, you know, retro computing and the Apple II in particular, and as a guy who works for a, a browser company who's among whose missions are optimization of things to enable that sort of thing right gaming and high performance software built on the web platform so that's just an amazing amazing thing to see and i it's amazing so far but my mind boggles of where that's gonna be like it's just crazy what is gonna come of that yeah, I mean, you know, within the first, you know, year or year and a half of work, they've gotten it to where it is now. Imagine where it's going to be in another year. And it's not just, you know, improvements to JSMS itself, but as the browsers continue to gain capability and performance and all of that, as we uh, improve the underlying optimization technologies that JSMS relies on, it's just going to be wow. For sure, yeah. I really, I, I love Justin, uh, Justin, Jason Scott's goal of being able to simply hyperlink to any piece of old software. I think that is really the turning point where these these experiences that we all had and remember so fondly and were so formative for us, being able to simply hotlink to that stuff from any document, any email, mm-hmm. any website. That's the turning point where that becomes part of the culture for everyone now. We can finally share those experiences in a way that's so low friction that anybody, your coworkers in the office or your mom or whoever, can just click on that link and say, oh, this is Loadrunner. This is what you've been talking about. Because right now, we really can't share those experiences with anyone but each other because the barrier to entry is so high. So I think um, Jason Scott's efforts and all the other fine folks at archive.org are really kicking ass on that one one really really looking forward to seeing where that goes imagine the possibilities of the next step after this you know deep linking let's say imagine you know linking to a specific level in load runner you know that's certainly possible there's no reason that you couldn't come up with something like that once you've got that ability to run everything in a browser there's all sorts of possibilities Actually, I think even bigger than that, because there's always the argument about emulation versus real hardware Mm -hmm. and such. So given 
enough time, there's no reason why in late in the evening I can't say I feel like playing Load Runner and then just link to that. Tell my super fast 3D printer in the morning, Apple II with Load Runner, please. <laughs> and there you go. And then yeah. when I'm done with it, it just melts back down to goo, and the next day it's an Altair. <laughs> Why, that sounds like what happens when I touch hardware. It melts down to goo. <laughs> wow, that's, that's a bold vision, Carrington. I think that might be more than a couple years away, but you know. Gotta think big. <laughs> that's why I'm recasting the movie, and I'm was. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I see how it is. I'm taking yeah, well, over. It's all that big thinking that caused his hair to vanish. Oh, <laughs> exactly. I see. Yeah, he's running it was for in cover. The way of all the big thinking. Right, just jumped right out, fled for its life, <laughs> as as everything eventually does. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Has it? Has Sarah? What did? What were your thoughts for the year? I think you. Have you? Yeah, I think that was pretty much it. But I do agree that um, the is it JS Mass Army announcing that now mm-hmm. um it's pretty cool but yeah i was just thinking um with also with my experience of trying to resurrect my apple II joystick that um if we could get some modern equivalents of game controllers that would be awesome mm. i'm still trying to get that to work the way i want yeah. it to and it's been Find, finding functional joysticks for apple twos is getting complicated well i have one it's just not the one that i had and it's just not the same i want my key buttons <laughs> But if they could make new ones that worked like that, then you could have like new controllers with the JS mass, and that yeah. would be really super awesome. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Although another thing that happened this year that totally blew my mind that came via Open Apple was learning that Avery still makes labels for five and a quarter inch discs. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. Trust me, I'm, I'm well aware exploded. of this. I've been I bought them by the metric ton until not very long ago. So. Yeah, I, yeah, we were quite tickled to find that not only do they still sell them, but you can also download a printer template from their website for those labels. Mm-hmm. Nice. Which, of course, we linked to our show notes uh, a few episodes ago. So, yeah, Sarah, I mean, I'll just echo your earlier sentiment about this being kind of my first year back in the Apple II community as well. And I can't believe it's only been, what, six months since KFest? And I feel like it's been forever. And it's been, again, for me as well, a year of kind of getting reacquainted with a lot of this stuff and getting back into everything and getting caught up with where everything is. It's so amazing how fast and how far everything has gone from the emulators to all the hardware add-ons, you know, the new things people have built and written for the for the machine. And... Um, uh, just sort of relearning a lot of this stuff has been really interesting. You know, I'd forgotten ProDOS commands and DOS 3.3 commands and just basic things, AppleSoft basic stuff. Uh, it's funny how how much of it was actually still buried in my brain somewhere, but I also had to kind of relearn a lot of it. So uh, that's that's been really a lot of fun to do that as well. All right. Well, uh, thank you all very much for being here. This has been a lot of fun and it's been a great 2014 and we're all looking forward to a great 2015. So until next month, this has been Open Apple. All right. Well, um, obviously I was not there, but uh, I'm imagining a great time was had by all and I'll hear that shortly. Uh, in the meantime, we do have uh, some news that we like to talk about. You know, it, it's the Apple II. And so I guess, you know, no news is really, really urgent news, but we still like to chat about it when we can. So uh, let's dive right into that, Quinn. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news.
So uh, I guess a follow-up from our last uh, episode when we had the awesome interview with Randy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about IO Silver, and we had said that it would be available imminently when uh, when the the podcast aired, and imminently is now. IO Silver is now available. So uh, have you downloaded it yet, Mike? I have. In fact, I downloaded it within the first hour or so after Randy sent an email, uh, and I guess it was I got it for cheap because it was supposed to be two ninety nine, and they had mispriced it at a dollar ninety nine. So, Randy, I owe you a dollar. And and when I when I'm saying that it's it's a dollar or two ninety nine, I'm talking about the IO Silver itself is free, and if you want the the retro upgrade, uh, which gives you the Apple II version of it, then that's two ninety nine. And you do want it because it's awesome. It really is. It's a lot of fun. I don't know. It's been a long time since I, I remember uh, playing IO Silver a lot on my original Apple II. And it's kind of confusing because it feels like this frantic arcade game, but it's actually sort of a, it's a strategy thing that you have to slow down and think about and take your time to plan out your moves carefully. So it's definitely, definitely challenging. And I know even the, the iOS version, which to me now feels very hard, has is, is apparently been dumbed down from the original yeah, and you can definitely see that. Um, I wouldn't say dumbed down so much as uh, eased to the learning curve. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, you can definitely see the difference if you play the original in Virtual Two or whatever. It's uh, it's definitely uh, tailored to a more uh, to a more modern audience with their shorter attention spans and uh, less dedication to learning uh, new things. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really turned out great. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, and so that's available now on iOS, and uh, we'll be, I guess they're, they're planning a, an Android version sometime in the near future. All right, so moving along, uh, what's this next item here, Mike? Another Apple One uh, went up for auction. It went for $365,000, which actually was quite a bit less than the previous one, which was almost a million. The one that went a couple of months ago uh, was in, I guess, better condition, and it had all the originals and the extras and was signed by Waz and all this stuff, and this one wasn't quite as fancy schmancy, but... They wanted, I think they were hoping it would get more than this. Uh, still, $365,000 is a whole lot of money. And at the same time, Ron Wayne, the uh, magical third co-founder of Apple, uh, who was only with them for a few months and then sold out for like $800 or something like that, he had a handful of early Apple ephemera, and he auctioned that off. And I think he got $25,000 for all that. It was like the Apple II blueprints and a, a draft of the Apple I manual. And he, he was the one who designed the very first Apple logo, the one of Newton sitting under the tree. It's a big elaborate uh, drawing. Uh, and uh, he was going to – I think he wanted to do that to supplement his Social Security. So I think twenty five grand is probably a good price for all that. Yeah. I wonder if this means we've reached peak Apple I pricing. Possibly, or they just didn't wait long enough, you know, although I'm not sure how, obviously, I don't have the kind of finances it takes to be bidding in Christie's auctions or anything like that, but I don't know if it works like eBay where somebody else bid just below 900 and whatever thousand the other one went for was, and, and if so, then why didn't they just turn around and bid that on this one? It's it's always kind of a um, crapshoot trying to figure out, you know, that what, what it's going to go for and why maybe it didn't fetch as much. Some, some of them are obvious. There was the one that Joe Copson, uh, Joe Copson's estate tried to sell and it was missing chips and broken and dirty. And that one, they, I think they started the auction at like 34 K and didn't even make the minimum. Um, but there's a reason for that. So 
Yeah, that uh, that early Apple logo is kind of a funny uh, outlier in Apple's long history of strong branding. Uh, I remember seeing some old materials that had that logo on it when I got my 2 Plus uh, back in, I think it was 79 or 80 or 81 and somewhere in there. And uh, yeah, it was clearly not a very good brand icon. I mean, it was so, <laughs> it was this sort of elaborate wood carving of Isaac Newton sitting under a tree and an apple and cursive script. And just, yeah, it was sort of so, even to a, to a 10 year old, it was sort of so obviously not a good choice for a corporate logo, but uh, it's a, it's a pretty drawing. It, it definitely catches the eye and kind of flares the imagination, but I don't know how you would stamp that into a plastic case and have it be anything more than a little black blob. Definitely a strange choice, even to print, you know, in black and white manuals of the day. It would have been probably fairly expensive, I would think, to print something that detailed. And sort of as a corollary to, to those articles, uh, obviously we'll have this all in the show notes, uh, the New York Times had a profile of the Apple One technician that Christie's now uses to uh, repair and, and clean and check all of these things and vet them for authenticity. Uh, his name is Corey. I forget what his last name is, but he hangs out over at uh, Apple Fritter, and I think his username is Corey. Let me see here, Corey nine eight six. And there are a few threads over there in the Apple One forums where he kind of talks about. A little, he goes into more depth about the processes that he uses to check the Apple Ones and some history and things. Kind of neat. Now this uh, this Ron Wayne auction includes Apple II blueprints. Have you seen pictures? Are they actual blueprints from it? I have not seen pictures of this. No, I. I mm. Yeah, and with the, with these high dollar auctions, it's sometimes hard to find pictures of the items because they want you to show up at the event or whatever, so they don't necessarily want to show it to you uh, up front. But yeah, I'm wondering because it wouldn't be unless they mean schematics, but those wouldn't be valuable because those came in every Apple II owner's manual. So I wonder if it's blueprints of the case or something like that, or CAD drawings of the case or something. Well, it looks like, okay, so th- these are, um, I- I'm over on the Christie's.com has their description and you can, you can look at some of the, you know, some photos of what's being sold there and they're like maybe concept drawings of, of what the case might look like. Okay. Mm. Kind of neat, I guess. I can't see myself doing that, but it's, uh, it's neat to see the stuff anyway. Sure. A while back, well, I guess it's been about a year now. Jonathan Zufi released his book called Iconic, which it's a uh, a series of it's a set of really really high quality photos of a lot of Apple gear, um, you know not just Apple One and Apple Two, but you know through the Macintosh and things like that. Last year you could, if you if you bought the special edition, I think was what it was. It came in this neat kind of spring loaded plastic case that was modeled to look a little bit like the the Apple Two. Uh, the chamfers and, and angles and stuff like that. Uh, well, he has updated the book with some new photos, new notes, and there's a new special edition that you can also order. So if you want to double dip, now's your chance. Cool. I never get tired of uh, Apple II coffee table books. So let's talk Beyonce, Mike. <laughs> Why would I want to talk Beyonce? Because it's your news item. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tossing you softballs here. Swing uh, at them, swing man. at them. Strike, strike, strike. A month or two ago, we talked about uh, the musician who had recorded an album made entirely with an Apple II and, and a synth and a drum machine, and he released that recently. And I've got this news alert in, in Google for Apple II stuff, and this one popped up for some reason. And I thought, this is really odd because it was a an, a, an article about Beyonce and her sound engineer, a hip-hop guy named Young Guru. And I thought, this is 
in the middle of all this, he just credits his his getting an Apple II early in life with having changed his life. And I just thought that was kind of neat. That is kind of neat. It's a, I like articles like this because it's a reminder that that uh, the Apple II touched a lot of different kinds of people from all walks of life, you know, not just us nerds and hobbyists and programmers and engineers. Uh, all sorts yep. of quote-unquote normals were also affected by the Apple II. The influence, I think, that the Apple II had on, well, obviously you and I is still pretty strong. And um, he doesn't talk any more about it than that. I couldn't find any more you know, expansion of the article where he talks about the setup or how he got it or anything. But uh, yeah, kind of a random like, wow, that's cool. Do you suppose Young Guru is his given name or is that perhaps? <laughs> you think that's on his birth certificate? Yes. Um, is, it, is his mother Mrs. Guru? It's entirely possible. Pretty. That would be pretty awesome. Next time I see him, I'll ask. All right. So moving along, uh, one of the things uh, I like to do here on Open Apple is snoop through our user mail. And uh, last month we talked to uh, listener Joshua, and he had some cool links in his email signature, which I, of course, clicked as one is wont to do. <laughs> and he had some cool stuff in there. So thanks, Joshua. One of the, the first one was uh, something he calls AppleSoft in your browser. It's a JavaScript implementation of AppleSoft Basic. Now, this is neat. It's not exactly an Apple II emulator like you would think, but it opens up a window that you can type Java, uh, AppleSoft code into, and uh, it will run it as though it was on an Apple II. And there's some amount of the hardware available. So like I was, I was able to do some low-res graphics stuff. Uh, I didn't have any luck getting high-res graphics stuff to work. So it's sort of somewhere in the middle between uh, an emulator of an Apple II and just a language environment. So it's it's a kind of a neat toy. And That's worth, really cool. Yeah, worth playing with for a little bit. It might be useful if you have a big elaborate AppleSoft program. It might be useful just to use to test out just because it might be easier than typing it into your Apple II. I don't know. You could paste it in there maybe. Because this is JavaScript and not Flash, will this run on, say, Safari or Chrome on your iPad? That is an excellent question. I didn't think to test that, but yeah, I would think it should for sure, yeah. So uh, the second item they had in there is even cooler. It's an older project, but still definitely worth looking at. It's a kind of desktop streaming for the Apple II, sort of like uh, VNC or remote desktop on OS X. It's very cool. It starts out a bit like uh, ADT Pro, where you connect your Apple II with a serial cable to, say, your Mac or your Windows machine. I actually think it's Windows only. And you run some software on the Windows machine, and it downloads itself through the ROM monitor, similar to how the ADT Pro Bootstrap does. And then it sets up this program on the Apple II, which receives high-res images. And the Windows PC is sampling the screen and down-resing it and converting it to you know, the six-color uh, high-res screen format and then sending it over. What he shows on his site is kind of a first draft, so there's no compression or anything involved. So it's a little bit slow, but it definitely could be made faster with some effort. Uh, so he's getting about one frame per second right now. But uh, it's pretty cool. You can actually see his desktop updating, his Windows desktop. In fact, he loads up uh, Second Life and plays some Second Life uh, on his Apple II through this uh, remote desktop. And he's got the uh, some input going bidirectionally and everything. Uh, it's actually surprisingly cool. So I, I was surprised I hadn't heard about this before. Wow, that's neat. The uh, video is quite fun to watch. So definitely worth checking out. Um, so I've been thinking about, you've had all these these new um, segments started in, in our, our 
our show, and I think they're cool and awesome, but I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. So I think I'm going to start one myself because we talk about Waz News uh, was every month, um, it seems, and it's always several things that we talk about. I figured we'd have a, a Waz News segment. We'll call it Woos. <laughs> that, uh, I'm on board with the Waz segment. Let's talk about the name. <laughs> oh, you don't like that? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. It's All right. Just, we'll table that for now. Okay. All right. Well, in the meantime, uh, we do have some Waz stuff to talk about. Waz is apparently getting his own reality show. It's going to be about future technology, and there's not a whole lot else uh, about it, um, other than speculation, I think, on, on the web uh, right now. But if he makes it, I will watch it. The article, which, of course, we'll link to for what it's worth, is a little bit disappointing. It's fairly empty of information, but there's a fun picture of him and Carrie Byron. Uh, those are oh, two, yeah. two of my favorite people, so nice to see awesome. them in a photo together. Quinn? Mike? Did you know that Apple did not start in a garage? You know, I, I don't believe you, because everyone has always told me that they did. Well, Waz says they didn't. He sat down for an interview with Bloomberg, and the interviewer brought up the question of what, what it was like in the garage. And Waz says, well, actually, it really wasn't much going on in the garage. There was a, a bench there, and there were a couple of people that tested a couple of the designs as we did them, but they really didn't do a lot. Most of the work was done at his desk at HP and in and, and other places. So kind of smashing a pleasant childhood memory, I guess. This video, uh, it's got one of my favorite bits in this is that, uh, of course, they show the house uh, that... Uh, where the alleged garage was, and there's a big sign on the lawn saying, please go away, basically. <laughs> the house is uh, owned by Steve Jobs' sister. Uh, last year or the year before, the state of California decided to turn it into a, an historic landmark um, against her will because I guess that means that in order to make any renovations or really major upgrades, she has to get permission from the state, and that's a big pain in the butt out there if you've ever dealt with California real estate and, and licensing and things like that. So she was not happy about that. There are plenty of pictures. If you do a Google image search, you know, just Apple garage, uh, you'll, you'll see it there. But it sounds like not a whole lot happened there. There's a neat video that, that accompanies the article. It's, and it's was you know, sitting talking, but part of it is him. And I don't know if this is his or they gave it to him, but it's this Apple IIe and they plug it in and, and he's kind of using it and fiddling around with it. And I don't know where they shot this thing. It looked like in a, an abandoned bomb shelter or something because it's gray concrete behind him and stuff. But uh, and the keys on the Apple II are all busted. But it was neat to see him play with an Apple II again because when he came out for Kansas Fest in 2013, he wouldn't touch any of the Apple One, touch the Apple One or anything else. Yeah, kind of a neat video and um, sad to, I guess, hear that it didn't start in a garage, but not really all that surprising. It's origin stories and and. Uh, legends get blown out of proportion and things. So, yeah, well, on the the garage story, that garage origin story is pretty deeply set in the American kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps uh, sort of mythos. It's, it's mm -hmm. pretty pretty deep in in in, a, in the psyche, I think, of of Americans and well Canadians for that matter too. <laughs> so, uh, the Planet Money, uh, the NPR show a while back, did a story about that how. It's such a big thing now that companies that didn't even really start in garages have sort of made up stories that they did to sort of create that same mythos because it's so powerful that everybody wants to have this image of a scrappy underdog startup uh, origin story because it gives you, I think, a lot of 
heart with uh, credibility with people, uh, especially in America. So I'll see if I can link to that in the show notes. It's a great story. Uh, all, a lot of the big, especially the tech companies, Silicon Valley companies, a lot of them have uh, created these stories. I think HP was a big one they talked about where they went out and found the their quote-unquote original garage and bought it for some obscene amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I think they even paid to move it or something, and it wasn't ever a part of their story. It was just sort, oh, of, sort of somewhat tangentially related to the founder or something. Anyway, it's uh, it's kind of a funny story of the length they've gone to to create this uh, garage startup story. So it sounds like Apple's was a little bit inflated also. Not surprising, though. Yeah. Um, looks like you found Waz in a video. I did, yeah. So this is a, a funny one. I was actually clicking through a newsletter at work that they send out, and there was it was a video about something completely unrelated but the you know YouTube does that thumbnail screen capture of the video uh, to show you, give you some idea what it is, and the screen capture was Waz's signature on a piece of wood. Of course, my the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I'm like, hello, what's this? And it turns out to be a video about it's a an oral history of sorts in a multi-part video series about the uh, mini computer boom that took place in uh, Boston in uh, kind of the late 60s, uh, I guess, and maybe very early 70s. So this is something, it's an interesting topic that I didn't really know much about. I guess before the microcomputer boom, there was a mini computer boom. And uh, I suppose if a mini computer in this definition is roughly described as those computers that were, uh, that had, the CPUs were built with uh, discrete logic. So they had a a CPU board as opposed to a single chip. And uh, so things like uh, DEX and uh, I guess PDPs and those sorts of things. Apparently, I didn't know this, but that market was basically killed by single chip CPUs. So uh, so it's a pretty interesting story. And there's a lot of great cameos in it. Uh, Dan Bricklin is in it. And there's some great shots of Apple IIs in there. And as the aforementioned Waz signature is in there. So uh, it's a fun watch and a very unexpected Waz cameo. That's really cool. And if you if it sounds like we're stalking Waz, that's because we are, or at least I am. And in fact, if you want to stalk Waz, you can find everything that he's ever posted on any Kinja blog. I think Kinja is like a blog enhancement. Um, I'm not real familiar with that particular title, but if you if you go to, to stevewaz.kinja.com, when he posts and uses his username, everything shows up there. Cool. I wonder what's going to happen when we run out of made-up words for new tech stuff. We'll just call them things like woos. Oh, all right. I see. Nice try. Aw. Don't push your agenda. Oh, man. I said we'd put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. Well, we did come back to it, just not when you wanted. <sighs> I'm just going to keep pushing. Uh, I'm not saying it's a terrible idea. I'm just saying, yeah, it's, it's a terrible, terrible <laughs> idea. It's terrible. Yeah. Okay. What else we got? Uh, let's see. Well, I suppose we should talk about the CFFA. Tell me about the CFFA. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, for many of us, uh, the CFFA 3000 run number four has been delayed until November 2015. And I think I can express a collective sad face for the Apple II community. Expect the prices to shoot up on eBay for a little while yet, for those of us who just can't wait. It's um, not like you didn't have your chance, though. He's done a few runs. It's true. Yeah, I really have no one to blame but myself. But I'm going to blame you anyway. Um, Well, you usually do. You should have reminded me or bought one for me or something. Well, I have three sitting here, and I will taunt you with them next time I see you. Well, that doesn't sound pleasant, so I don't blame you. I blame Commodore. This is somehow Commodore's fault. Always. Always is Commodore's fault. We talked about uh, Ron Wayne earlier, another Apple 
early Apple employee is speaking out. Um, well, not speaking out because that makes it sound like he's protesting or something. Bill Fernandez did an interview over at techrepublic.com where he talks about some of his early memories of, of working, um, well, not in the garage, but working uh, with Waz and, and Jobs and the others. I think it depends on who you ask and probably the time of day and whether the wind is blowing north or south. But I think he's officially employee number one, but I'm not 100% sure about that. That could also be Dan Kotke, and it could also be uh, Chris Espinoza and a couple of other people. But it's a neat interview, and, and it's nice to hear from um, somebody who doesn't normally talk a lot about Apple. Yeah, I like these kinds of stories about the people that were sort of not the uh, big names, but were sort of uh, around the perimeter doing all the other stuff that you never hear about. And were probably very important to, to Apple getting off the ground. Definitely. So uh, let's see. Let's talk about software a little bit. We've got uh, Kevin Smallwood is GPLing the source code for GBBS Pro. So do you did you ever use a BBS running on GBBS Pro? I dialed several of them. I never. I didn't have my own uh, running on that, and it's it's been a long time since I had those particular memories. GBBS Pro is sort of special, I guess, in in the Apple II software world in that it's. For a long time, it, it's still one of those that, that, that you couldn't really get anymore because Kevin bought it from – I forget who he bought it from, but it's been kind of this – I bought it from this guy who bought it from this guy. And, and and he's been up until recently actively kind of protecting it and saying, please don't post this anywhere. And um, I know at one point he was thinking about selling the rights to the program. doesn't look like maybe that happened, but I know he's working with Tony Diaz now to finally get this out there where people – can have it and use it and enjoy it because for a long time you couldn't download it from like say Asimov, but you couldn't buy it from Kevin either because Kevin was, I forget the, how the narrative went, but basically he wasn't prepared to sell any new licenses for it. So if you wanted that particular piece of software, you were kind of out of luck. And I know that popular one because there were a lot of add-ons and it was uh, very something you could go in and really customize the heck out of um, and it was a, a robust and common platform back in the day so people kind of wanted to get their hands on it it had been frustrating up to this point so this is good news yeah that's cool i always like to hear about anything being open sourced so for anyone who isn't aware gpl by that we mean gnu public license which is sort of the uh, most hippie openest form of open source software where basically you can do whatever you want with it, but nobody's ever allowed to make any money on it ever again. Kevin announced that over on Facebook. And, and um, if we can't link directly to the Facebook post, I know that Call Apple and AT Central both posted about it. Uh, so personally, I'd like to say thank you to Kevin. And Kevin announced that, that you know he's doing this with uh, Tony Diaz. Um, so thank you to both of them for making this happen. And uh, who knows, maybe this will spark a resurgence in uh, BBS stuff. That's kind of the one area of retro computing, which I feel is still a little bit uh, underserved, just because I guess it's so difficult without the infrastructure to run BBSs and get people to dial into them. So I know, I know there's the telnetting business and so on, but it's it's just not the same. <laughs> yeah, you, you just got to have that modem noise. Yeah, the modem noise is so important. And then just, I don't know, it feels like if I'm running through my other computer, then I might as well just be using that computer on the internet. I don't know. It just, it just feels, just feels like cheating or something. I don't know. Just, just blech. Yeah, me and me. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm a BBS snob all of a sudden. I don't, know wow. when that, I don't know when that happened. If you've been paying attention at all to the news lately, you probably are aware that uh, Sony got hacked. And I don't think we need to talk about the politics behind that or the specifics, but the, the hackers who did this have released 
several um, packets, I guess, large packets of, of the data that Sony had uh, and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And one of the things that has emerged was kind of the turmoil that was going on with uh, their Steve Jobs movie. Because a couple of years ago, when they first announced, probably right after he died, that uh, they were going to be making these biopics about Steve Jobs, there were two of them that were announced right around the same time. One of them, the one that starred Ashton Kutcher, has already been made, gone to the theaters, and you can buy it now for two bucks or whatever on iTunes. But the other one, the Sorkin picture, um, is has just kind of been lingering out there. And as it goes with Hollywood, you know, less commoners generally don't get to hear about a whole lot. You know, sometimes stuff just goes away and you never know the details. But because of this hack, we do get to catch a glimpse of, of what ha- what's been going on there. And I guess Sorkin wanted Tom Cruise to play Jobs and the, the studio said no. And and they wanted Christian Bale, and when Bale was on, they were happy about that, but then he dropped out, and I guess that the way the budgets work is that the caliber of the star you get determines, has a lot to do with how much money you get from the studio to make the movie. So when he quit and, and they signed Michael Fassbender, the project lost like $25 million that they were going to get from Sony, and uh, it's kind of this ugly sort of tale, and now it's over at Universal Pictures, and, and Natalie Portman was going to do it, and now she's not. So it's just been this crazy wild ride. So we may never actually get to see this. Yeah, and that's the one that was going to have Seth Rogen in it, right? Yes. So that's kind of a funny common thread, because as we re- as we're recording this, uh, this Sony hack has blown up in another form, in, in the form of this interview movie uh, with Rogan and Franco about North Korea. Theaters are refusing to show it because of some sort of vaguely defined threats or something, and it's this whole big foofara, and who knows what's really going on, but it's all very strange. Sad to see. I don't know if we need another Jobs movie. I do like uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Stuff that He's Written in the Past. I've I've always kind of enjoyed um i know the west wing was very good and i enjoyed that that facebook movie so i was kind of looking forward to this and um you know it may not happen but if it does uh i will go see it i'm with you on the world not needing another jobs movie but uh <laughs> so you're probably not gonna go see it otherwise. yeah honestly i haven't seen any of them to be honest i uh, i just i just don't feel like that's the interesting half of the apple story but obviously i'm biased that's why this isn't a mac podcast i guess <laughs> or maybe an iphone podcast I think there's a bunch of those already. I bet there are many more iPhone podcasts than there are Apple II podcasts. Probably so. If there's more than one. Yeah, that's right, Carrington. I said one. Wow. <laughs> Direct attack. All yeah. Right. I'm bitter because he said this, he's got like three episodes in the can, so he's apparently just sitting on them. So shall we uh, wrap up the news then and move on to some user feedback? Oh, sure. Why not? All right, so we only have uh, one letter this month because apparently our users don't like to talk to us. Maybe we smell bad, I don't know. Boo us. So uh, we got a follow-up from Josh uh, with regards to the Traveler module that we talked about last month that was recovered from some floppies in a magic window file. And I think we alluded to or suggested that perhaps those would be available in PDF form online. And uh, that turns out not to be the case, which is why if you went looking for that link in the show notes, it wasn't there, unfortunately. Uh, We spoke a little too soon on that one. Uh, It looks like uh, Mark, the author of Traveler, actually has plans for those documents, so he didn't want to release them. They'll probably be available on DriveThruRPG, which is a service, or possibly some other product that is related to that in the future. Apparently, the module in question that was discovered is called Manhunt Part 1 of the, I'm going to say, Onsium Quest. I don't know how to pronounce that word. 
for Mega Traveler. So in any case, uh, we will continue to follow that story because it is interesting, uh, both to Mike for the Traveler aspect and Woo. to me for the cool recovered data format. Woo. And uh, we'll continue to yeah post updates as we get them. Can't wait. So Mike, uh, what's up for Weird Gaming this month? Well, I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about alternate reality, the series that, that never really happened. Uh, alternate reality was a game designed by Philip Price, and there were two games in total that were published. The, the there was the the city and the dungeon. He had these these really big plans. Uh, it was going to be this elaborate, ongoing series. I think there were going to be seven games in the series uh, total. There was the city, the dungeon, and a bunch out in the wilderness and places like that. The grand designs that, that Philip had unfortunately never came to fruition because uh, it was getting more and more expensive and taking longer and longer, and they kind of pulled the plug on it. And Philip, understandably, was was angry, and, and in fact, it, he left the game design industry because he was so distraught over this. It's kind of this unfinished masterpiece. Uh, I, I I don't know if you ever played it. The, the images, the disc images, I know for a long time, uh, the ones that were on Asimov didn't work and it was kind of a, a hunt. I think they've been cracked and, and are now available and actually playable. Um, there's some, some neat music in there, and it's, it's a, a forward-looking RPG similar to uh, The Bard's Tale, and I highly recommend playing that. That's really cool. That's a great find, Mike. Uh, it's not often we get to see this kind of stuff. I mean, just like today, you know, for every piece of software that is released, there's, you know, a dozen that weren't finished for various reasons or were canceled or whatever, or the company went under or whatever. So you never get to see that stuff. All kinds of three-quarter finished products have vanished into the ether and we'll never know about them. So it's cool to see one like this that managed to somehow escape the uh, the void yeah, and it would have been neat, I think, to see uh, what Philip wanted to do with the rest of the games. His his uh, designs, his, his his grand imagination, I think, was probably a little bit heavier than the you know two megahertz forty eight k computers of the day could handle. Um, but he was talking about doing you know three D fully textured map graphics and and this orchestral soundtrack and and some some uh some neat stuff and who knows maybe maybe if he maybe if he had drawn it out long enough the technology would have caught up but yeah. um we will never know yeah it could have been the duke nukem forever of its day <laughs> that's right if, if he just had it in production for 20 years the hardware would have <laughs> caught up with his ideas exactly but uh there's a there's a, a quick little interview with philip price over at dadgum.com we'll have the, the link in the show notes and he kind of talks about what he'd hoped would happen and and what really happened and, and what he's doing now or when this was this interview was done so awesome well good uh, good good find so a quick follow-up to our weird gaming segment from last month i don't think we've talked about this since then uh that the we talked about the last time that the task force swear hack and uh, i was oh, yeah. talking yeah and i was talking about uh how it may have been lost forever if the floppy copy of it in my parents basement uh is not still readable well, uh, Apple II community to the rescue, someone else out there does in fact have it. And they managed to image it, and it is now available. So I uh, will dig up that link, and I believe they put it on uh, Asimov. 
So I will dig up that link and definitely have it in the show notes. It's uh, not to be missed. Uh, as one of the Facebook group commenters said, it's uh, these things are never quite as exciting uh, in reality as you remember them. So it's not quite as <laughs> gra- graphic and crazy as I remembered it in my, uh, in my youth, but uh, it's still fun to see it. It's still a weird thing. You can giggle at, giggle like a kid at all the naughty swears. That's right. The bad, bad words. Uh, of course, nowadays, a primetime AMC show makes it uh, look like a Disney movie. But <laughs> No kidding. <laughs> the, the, the times, they have changed. Mm. So uh, I'll throw one more uh, element or item into the weird gaming segment, which I've been wanting to talk about for a while. It's not exactly a weird game, but, well, <laughs> it is weird, but it's not uncommon, let's say. Uh, and that's the Bilestowed. Now, surely, oh. Mike, you must have played the Bilestowed. Well, sort of. Sort of. Um, yeah, that's the thing. I don't think anyone's really played it because very few people understand it. Right, because like 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 me, most of us had probably had the pirated disc and stuck it in and and went, "What on earth is this game?" and kind of, yeah. you know, did the let's hit let's hit every key and see what it does and sometimes the keys did some things and sometimes they did others, but I never had a manual, so it never made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I love this thing because it's the quintessential early 80s game. It's just uh, shamelessly, fearlessly experimental and bold and just trying crazy ideas left and right. And the end result is not exactly playable, but you have to really admire what it is. You know, it's so, it's a very, it's it's also a quintessential Apple II game, which is also what I love about it. So uh, just in case some of our listeners have not heard of this or played it, it's basically a top-down gladiator game for two players, and you're on an island. It's actually a series of islands that you move from one to the next, and you control a top-down big muscled warrior guy with an axe and a shield and you have an obscene amount of controls uh, with which to manipulate this uh, soldier fighter warrior dude you literally control every joint on his body with a block of nine keys on your keyboard wow and yeah so you and not only that but the controls are quite strange in the sense that so to move your wrist for example uh, you have three keys that move your wrist and you have a left and a right and a center and when you start moving let's say your wrist to the left it will continue moving until you hit the stop key so there's a left or right and a stop key so you have to sort of hit the right key to move it right and then hit stop to get it to stop moving right so (laughs) the controls and if that sounds confusing it's because it is now imagine that times three joints that you're trying to control and also move and you don't just move in cardinal directions as you would imagine you actually steer yourself sort of like a car it's (laughs) the (laughs) the, the controls are utterly baffling but i did at the time actually spend a lot of time trying to get good at this and it is possible to get good at it the learning curve is very steep the controls are very tricky Uh, and the ai is quite good so it's actually uh, quite a challenge Uh, you can play it by yourself uh, with the against the ai or you can play with an against another person so there are some techniques to it. It helps to know the layout of the islands. There's, I don't even know how many different islands. I never saw them all. There's many, many of them. After each round, you move on to the next island. And there's this weird moment where it gives you a code that you're supposed to look up, I presumably in the manual, which I suppose is supposed to tell you something about the island. Maybe there was maps of each island in the manual. I don't know. That There's this weird moment where it gives you this code um, and you're supposed to look it up or something. But uh, again, yeah, like you, I never had the original, so there's a lot of this didn't ever quite make sense. But uh, it's uh, really quite well written. This game, it's quite quite speedy for for an Apple II game. They, uh, you know, it's almost 
full screen, top down scrolling, uh, which they do with some clever tricks uh, with the background. The way they render the background is quite clever. It's sort of a grid. So they move the lines and they don't have to move all the pixels. They just move the lines on a solid background. So it looks like all of the ground is moving. It's, you know, full of little tricks like that. It's, it's really more of, uh, it's easy to view it as an action game uh, because it's two guys fighting, but it's really more of a strategy game. It's sort of, you have to envision your limbs as kind of troops in a unit that are kind of trying to work together to achieve an end. It's because it's, and it's fairly, it's a fairly slow pace. So once you get the hang of the controls, you can kind of do a lot of things at the same time. So yeah, very strange game. This game has sort of a I don't know if you call it a, a twist or not to its history, but John Romero, famous id software programmer who and, and who got a start in Apple II Gaming and worked at Softalk and things like that. One of the things John does now is he collects software, and, and, and I think he's he's still got his, his original Apple IIe up and running, and this is kind of one of his like golden trophies that he likes to show off to people. He's a big fan of this game. Over at his... Uh, website um, planetromero.com he has a big blog entry about showing this game off and i guess he's he's got the original 1982 gold label retail floppy i guess it was um because it was it was controversial because of the blood and the hack and slash not really out there that much i don't know if it was because stores wouldn't sell it or parents wouldn't buy it but finding an original copy of the bios to these days is almost impossible and he's got one and he has a neat little write-up over there so we'll have the link to the show notes that's cool. Yeah, that that is a really key point that I missed in my little description there is that, yeah, there's a fairly startling for the time amount of blood in it. Every time you get a wound, it bleeds like a like a sieve and uh, you can actually re- chop off limbs and they remain on the ground bleeding. And it's it's really quite gory or as gory as, you know, six colors of, of high res at one megahertz can be. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who owned a copy of this. As you say, it was so uncommon. I never saw it in a store. Uh, not, you know, not that I would have bought it as a teenager, even if I had seen it. But uh, yeah, I never saw it anywhere. So it was a bit of a bit of an underground weird thing, this game. Uh, according to John's notes here, it was so controversial that the, the programmer is written by a guy named Mark Goodman. And it was so controversial that he had to use a nom de plume, which was, if you boot this thing up, it'll say it was written by Mangrove Earth Shoe. Um, hmm. Because he wanted to continue publishing other games as Mark Goodman and was worried that the stigma wouldn't would, would prevent him from working in the games industry after that. Of course, he never actually did anything after that, which is kind of sad. But um, he says... Um, uh, Mark was attempting to play the song Fear Elise while simul- simultaneously running a game. On the Apple II, this was one of the most difficult programming tasks, and very few programmers got it working right. So that's kind of what that noise is in the background. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, and I always wondered about the name of the author. It was oh, Yeah, it was always so strange. I just assumed it was a cracker name or something, but that's... That's that's a funny piece of the story. Little did he know, uh, it actually probably would have helped his career considerably to have owned up to the milestone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Similar to uh, to the Task Force hack, of course, even the most basic form of Grand Theft Auto makes Bilestone look like a, a Bambi story, but... All right, so um, moving right along. You know, I just have to say I really like that segment. It's probably my favorite new thing that we're doing. <laughs> it's, is it as cool as Woo's? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I just, you know, I... 
don't don't make me find you a new co-host. Oh man! You notice that I didn't threaten to kick you off the show. I <laughs> that's threatened right. to leave. I've and learned you get my stuck lesson. The show, yeah. That's right. I've learned my lesson. I'm not threatening to quit. I'm well. Wait, I am threatening. I'm not threatening to fire you. I'm threatening to quit. Yeah. I'm going anyway. to I'm going to organize an email campaign to get get you to call it booze. Hmm. You should organize an email campaign just so we get email because we feel all sad that nobody wrote that's us. That's true, month. man. Any email at all would be great because yeah. we're lonely. Yeah, maybe it's because we're not actually giving out our email address enough. We should do that more. So write us at podcast at open-apple.net. All right, moving right along. Uh, tech segment, right? Is that our next thing? I think that's that's our next thing. Yeah, all right. So in tech this month, I had a couple of things I wanted to talk about. The first is a nice little display that I found. I've been working with my 2C Plus, and of course, one of the things many of us need for these uh, machines is a monitor. And Apple IIs are a little bit tricky this way because the NTSC video that they put out is not exactly NTSC. Uh, Woz did some tricks as he was wont to do with uh, reducing chip count and so on. So, and of course, the way he used artifact color instead of real color in the video signal. It can be tricky to find a monitor that can render Apple II video nicely, especially more modern displays. If you can find a display from, you know, the, maybe the late 90s or something, uh, the most modern ones that still had composite video ports on them, uh, they tend to be fussier about the video standards than the older stuff was. So, you know, in the 80s, every computer played pretty fast and loose with video standards. Nowadays, yeah, they're a little fussier. So I went through a couple of things trying to find something that would render 2C video nicely. And I found this thing. It's called the Night Owl Security Monitor. It's quite cheap. Uh, I got it on Amazon for 80 bucks, I think. And it's a nice wow. size. Uh, yeah, it's it's surprisingly tricky to find medium-sized 4-3 aspect ratio LCDs. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's, it's really tricky because uh, LCDs came around kind of right at the tail end of the 4-3 aspect standard. And then, you know, 16.9 became the standard quite quickly after that. And then LCDs got quite cheap right in that same period so they all got quite large in a hurry so you can find 19 or 20 inch 4.3 lcds from a few years ago and then you can find all manner of 16.9 screens but it's hard to find like a 10 or 11 inch 4.3 lcd that's just like a white elephant so uh this thing is quite a good find it's uh, yeah eight inches in size it's actually got two inputs on it but you only need one because it's a security monitor it's also of course hard to find anything that renders composite video anymore so there's a couple of market segments that still do this Uh, i did a bunch of research trying to find this thing Uh, security systems are one area that still use composite video another is uh, car audio equipment frequently still does backup cameras and that sort of stuff and that's also often 4.3 uh, not to be confused with the headrests uh, the seat headrests those are generally 16.9 but the backup camera screens that are designed to go in the dashboard are generally still 4.3 but i would avoid those because car stereo people are very deep pocketed as a rule and every any product targeted at, at that market is just ridiculously overpriced so i would avoid that and the third market I found that still uses uh, medium-sized 4.3 LCDs is point-of-sale terminals. So the things that employee at McDonald's is poking at when you order your Big Mac. Those are also a good option, although nowadays they tend to come with a built-in resistive touchscreen, which uh, is sort of useless and also adds to the cost. So uh, security monitor systems seems to be a good uh, compromise of all of that. So uh, I'll link to this thing in the show notes, and uh, it makes an awesome uh, Apple II. 2C display. Wow, those are all great tips. 
So uh, the last thing I want to talk about in the tech segment is that uh, hardware project that I mentioned at the top of the show. Okay. So uh, <laughs> this is something that I think a lot of people have wanted to do and some have done in various forms. Uh, I was somewhat inspired by Charles Mangan's work uh, with his 2C that he's been doing. He showed a prototype of this at KFest last year uh, where he had built a monitor into his 2C, uh, built a small LCD in it that kind of flipped up. It was really cool. And so this is something similar. I'm calling it the Teddy Top as a working name, uh, just because the Teddy was a, one of the code names for the 2C. And I'm working on a kind of a, a lid that goes on your 2C and kind of turns it into a laptop. So mm. it, uh, it it's the size of the laptop, about two centimeters thick, or size of the machine rather. It sits on top and it holds a screen, uh, an LCD screen inside. It covers the keyboard when it's closed and you hinge it open it's hinged at the back it is entirely powered and run off the ports on the back of the machine so uh, right now it's i've got the prototype running on uh, i've got a prototype built with foam core that's running off the video port on my 2c and uh, i'm also incorporating the unis disc from nishida radio the uh, sd card uh, device Mm -hmm. for smart port and uh, uh, disk three uh, disk two emulation Uh, so i've got that incorporated as well so it gives you kind of like the idea is you stick this thing on top of your 2c and it gives you kind of everything you want to take it on the road in one package it's got your sd cards and your lcd and everything and there's no extra power supplies or uh, anything like that. It's all just built in. So, and the other thing I'm more striving for is to make it uh, non-destructive. So it actually just clamps in place non-destructively, nothing, there's no screws or cutting or anything of the machine. Uh, that's the goal anyway. I've got it all designed uh, in the CAD and I'm working, I'm waiting for the uh, 3D prints to come back. I've, I'm 3D printing everything and it's uh, should be coming back from Shapeways early uh, in this coming year. Uh, I'll be continuing to, to talk about that on my blog, uh, which I will link to in the show notes. I've got pictures and write up on the process, development process of this thing. It's not a product that I'm going to sell necessarily because it would be difficult and expensive to produce, but all of the uh, files and everything is all going to be open source, so anybody can build one for themselves if they want. Wow, that is super cool. I can't, I can't wait to, to see that in action. Yeah, I really hope to have it done by uh, Kansas Fest so I can bring it. That's part of the goal of this is to have something I can bring to KFest. So uh, <laughs> before I'm done, hopefully it'll have some other neat features as well, but uh, so far for sure it'll have... LCD display in it, and probably also the SD card reader built in. I love the fact that the hobbyist community is still, you know, 30-some years after the Apple II, is still so passionate and, and interested in creating and and making and sharing that, that we can have things like this and, and the stuff that Charles is doing and, and uh, you know, Reactive Micro is getting back into the game. And, and on the software side of, of the house, we've got guys like uh, Ivan and, and Martin Hay coming up with cool hacks and, and fun stuff. It just, it, it's kind of an exciting time to be an Apple II fan. Yeah, it really is. And the the tech, the enabling technology, you know, of this, what people often call the maker movement, uh, has really created this perfect storm with retro computing, you know, where everybody's learning electronics and Arduinos and all this kind of stuff. And these old computers are perfect for that. You know, it's the same level of technology, basically. So it's, you know, this kind of low speed, simple digital logic. So it's so easy to, to, to meld the two. And then you combine that with 
this empowering kind of, you know, decentralized additive manufacturing, like 3D printing and things like that. And it just, yeah, it unlocks all kinds of doors that, you know, wouldn't have been possible before. So uh, it's, it is a very exciting time to, to be playing with this stuff for sure. And it doesn't hurt at all that Apple, you know, was so open with documents and, and, and source code and schematics and, and just information about, you know, was as open design, here you go, pop the lid off and play. And, and we're still doing it now. And it's great to see. That is not to be underestimated, the power of that. I mean, you know, when I was designing this system, I was able to find the, you know, the pinouts for the for the drive port and the video expansion port. And I was able to deduce and or look up the current limits, you know, on the video expansion port to know how much, you know, I can drive off of it and all these sorts of things, you know, without that information, this just wouldn't be possible. So, and that wasn't stuff that I had to dig up on the internet. That was in the manual. So, you know, you're certainly not going to get that nowadays. And, you know, I have the, my Apple II plus schematic hanging on my wall and it's, you know, I refer to it all the time for various little projects. So, uh, you know, that, that's great. And the other thing that's a big enabler here is the collaborative tools that we have now that wouldn't have been possible at the time. Uh, like Charles has done this amazing 3d rendering of the Apple IIc, and it's, uh, I believe one quarter or one half scale. And, <laughs> He's great at building these things. It's uh, it's so accurate that I was actually able to do some basic design work. I built in CAD my uh, my Teddy Top prototype. I just built it on top of his model of the two C, <laughs> wow. and my first test prints were really close. I uh, you know I only had to make a couple of tweaks. So that's you know speaks to how accurate his uh, his renderings or his uh, models are. So and he's just shared those um, for anyone to use. So that kind of collaboration is just really powerful. I mean, it, you look at this model and I can't even imagine how long it took him to build it. Uh, so, uh, you know, he saved me a tremendous amount of work with that. So, and of course, Charles sells, um, sells his models in physical form as Raspberry Pi cases and uh, other fun things. Feel free to uh, uh, patronize his awesome work that I'm sure would be much appreciated. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, really incredible to to see all this happening. And and I guess on that note, unless you have anything else? No, I guess we should wish our listeners a happy holidays. Hopefully Mm, you're celebrating in whatever manner you're accustomed to with friends and or loved ones nearby. It's been a great year for OpenApple, and uh, I'm really excited to have wrapped up the year with you as my new co-host, or me as your new co-host, I guess, technically. (laughs) (laughs) Look at that. I'm already taken over. (laughs) Well, that's why I brought you on. I'm I'm eventually just going to sneak out the back door and you won't even realize it. Um, (laughs) I would like to to thank our roundtable guests, uh, Carrington, Sheppy, and Sarah, for um, sitting down and talking Apple II with us for a little while. I think we'll have a a great 2015. So until next time, from the Open Apple World Headquarters, have a happy holidays and a happy new year, and we will talk to you all next time. Woos. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. I don't know. Speak for yourself. The Apple II, yeah, I could take it or leave it at this point. Eh, didn't affect me that much. But since we're here, we might as well keep doing this. I think you're a secret Commodore girl.
<laughs> could be. You know what? It's, that's where the rage comes from. It might be. I'm just, I'm just jealous deep down. 